Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of Experience Ethnography. My name is Adam Gamwell, and I'll be co-hosting the show with Gary David. Uh, and so what the show is, is that we're both, we're sociologists and anthropologists, and we've been trained in the work of ethnography, which is, is studying people's everyday lives and studying the customs and norms and kind of like the, what people do behind what they say, you know, putting those together and understanding how people understand their, their lives and their worlds and how the environment will shape behavior and how behavior can shape environment and characteristics and cultural ideals can shape what we think is acceptable what is not acceptable, etc. So uh, it's really an exciting field and, and it's so cool to see that it's, it's coming more and more into the business world. And so you see things like experience design and that advertising agencies are not just about trying to sell you a product now, but they want to sell you an experience. Uh, and if that sounds at all familiar to you, then, then we're in the right place. And that ethnography is a hugely important piece of understanding what it means uh, to shape an experience for somebody, particularly in a business context. And so uh, Gary and I will be kicking off this first episode with the reflections uh, from an event that he was at last night. So he just started doing this, this great new series called uh, CX Frontiers. CX stands for Customer Experience. And so uh, they had a really great event that was sponsored by uh, Michael Condon over at Insperity, which is an HR services, payroll benefits, and HR administration company. So they do a lot of great work in terms of trying to keep the human inside uh, of the business, you know, and sort of keeping businesses human. And so they had a really awesome discussion that was framed around this, this provocative idea that perhaps the customer is not always right. And if they're not, then what does that mean? And what is, what is sort of being right mean? This is kind of an adage that we've had uh, since forever, actually, as Gary able to point out, uh, since the early 1900s, that, that this is, there's a sort of idea that the customer is always right, so therefore the business must bow to the whims of the customer. But that idea is changing a little bit, and it's not because... Uh, you know, that businesses are somehow gaining more power, that customers are gaining less power, but just that we're realizing that there's more of a relationship and that there's a human side of this that needs to be accounted for. And so that sometimes business policies and other sort of formalized bureaucratic networks can, but, you know, they can both help but also obscure the human relationships behind it. And so that's what CX Frontiers is a lot about. Gary will tell you a bit about it here in a second. Uh, but I just wanted to sort of intro the idea and say that we're really excited to bring this this conversation to you and this new series. Uh, and so as always, as we build this show, we're going to be we're gonna be putting it out on, you know, experienceethnography.com is our website. And we will be able to uh, field questions, field ideas from people uh, on our upcoming Twitter account as well as we'll have an a info drop uh, where you can send us an email, send us a message if you have any ideas for episodes or topics you want discussed. Uh, this is really about being a, a dialogue show, a communication show that we want to bring more ethnographic thinking, more human-centered thinking uh, into the business world, into the customer experience, the experience design world. Uh, and so we're really excited and we can't wait to, to share it with you. And so without further ado, we'll hop over to Gary. This is Gary David. And wanted to talk to you a little bit today, Adam, about an event I had last night called mm -hmm. CX Frontiers. It's the first event of its kind that a friend of mine, Megan Burns, and I put on trying to push and explore the boundaries of customer experience and experience design as it relates to people's everyday lives. Very cool. And so uh, it's, it seems like, you know, like the, a great idea for this event and that the time is ripe for uh, businesses and for you know consumer-facing groups and customer-thinking people to try to push and kind of see what these frontiers are, right? So I'm curious to think about what are some of the takeaways you had from the event and like, or I mean, also like what inspired this event for you guys? Well, as Megan and I, you know, got to know one another through my research in customer experience and experience design, one of the things that became pretty clear pretty quickly was that a lot of people are looking to engage in higher level conversations and thinking around concepts or themes or sayings that are treated as taken for granted, but really need closer inspection. Mm -hmm. And in their everyday work lives, they really don't have that opportunity to engage in that kind of conversation. And even when they go to different kinds of professional events, they're really not structured 
to facilitate this kind of exploration of this terrain. So you might go to an event where there's a speaker and you spend all the time listening to the speaker, but you don't get the chance to engage. So what we wanted to do was create an event in an environment where we could invite a limited number of people to come together and moderate an extended conversation, not around a lot of different topics, but around one central topic that is important to the work they do and the future of customer experience and experience design. Hmm. Cool. And so I think that that's actually really important. And I agree too, it's like even thinking about um, a lot of the work that we do with ethnography, Part of this is about the question of scale, right? And how do we bring in a good number of people, but not like obviously a massive group because that, that can make dialogue and conversation difficult unless you split off into small groups anyway. So it sounds like kind of the framework of this is to sort of provide space to have these more intimate conversations that like people can, everybody can have their voice heard and kind of put out concerns, questions, and ideas. And you can think about it as your customer experience graduate seminar, right? I mean, mm. you're there, you got a topic, you got a text, you have an idea. And you're just going to sit around a table and explore it, knock it around, ask questions, uh, think critically about it, and do the things that you really don't have the opportunity to do in your everyday work life because you're so busy just trying to get your work done. And so mm -hmm. this is a way for people to kind of go back to school in a manner of speaking, but where they're the experts. My job, even though I know a thing or two about customer experience, and Megan knows a lot about it, but our jobs were really to facilitate, not to drive the conversation, but to help push those boundaries, to help be basically trail guides as we go down into the peaks and valleys and contours of the landscape that is customer experience. Cool. Yeah, so let's 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 kind of dig into some of the takeaways you had uh, from this event. I mean, one of the one of the pieces that we know that we that you began with was this really kind of provocative idea that the customer is not always right. Right, and so you know the first thing, the first event, and we're going to have these events monthly. The first topic that we thought would be really important and crucial, which is central to customer experience and customer centricity, is is the customer always right? You know, this idea that. The customer is always right, and we always have to defer to the customer. And, and that expression is attributed to Harry Gordon Selfridge, who owned um, a string of department stores in 1901, founding this notion that the customer is always right. And as I did some research on this, it was interesting to think back to that time where the, the guiding principle might be caveat emptor, or buyer beware, that it's up to the customer to do his due diligence at that time because women were not the ones shopping because they didn't have jobs and didn't have disposable income, um, and really be more egalitarian and democratic as a principle that we as businesses need to be there to service the customer. And so the customer is always right, as much as anything, was really about reframing how we approach it. And sometimes you need those radical statements to reframe traditional thinking. But what has happened in the interim is that people can start to treat this as a commandment, thou shalt, you know, have the customer mm. always be right. And one of the things that quickly came up in our conversation with CX professionals is, well, guess what? The customer isn't always right. There are times when the customer can, in fact, be wrong. And it becomes a question of how do we approach the customer when the customer is not always right? How do we set expectations and how do we really train staff to deal with those situations? Mm. Yeah, that's that's an incredibly interesting point. And actually, I love the reflection on in terms of you know once you once you kind of do the history right and you kind of look into where an idea 
a mantra, a saying came from in this case, right? The the customer is always right. Um, you know, began with with nice origin ideas of like let's let's actually add more democratic and egalitarian ideas to the the customer the shopping experience, even though they didn't call it that at the time, of course. Um, you know, a little over a hundred years ago. But then you're right; we sort of recognized. Turns out that the, that idea is nice, but yeah, treating it as a commandment doesn't doesn't work. You know, uh, and so. And the question, too, is, like, is shopping, like, you know, hugely different today than it was in 1901? There, there's some major differences, but at the same time, we're still looking at humans interacting with other humans in this sort of business or shopping context, right? And that's a really good point you're making. And one of the one of the key takeaways is, you know, the customer might not always be right, but the customer is always human. And I mm. just did an interview with a gentleman who is very well-known in customer experience, and I'm going to get this quote wrong, but it's close enough, where he was quoting <laughs> someone else who said 100% of customers are people and 100% of workers or employers are people and that makes business uh, a people, you know, to understand business you have to understand people. And mm. so the customer might not always be right but the customer is always a human. And yeah. as a result of that, one of the key takeaways was that we have to try to understand the perspective from which that person is coming. Doesn't mean mm. that perspective is valid, right? I mean, there was a really uh, interesting and tragic example recently in Albany, New York, where an African-American gentleman who had worked at Home Depot for, I believe, over a decade, 60-year-old man, uh, was told the customer walking into the store who had a dog, but not on a leash, could you please put your leash, your dog on a leash? And the customer proceeded to, you know, swear at the gentleman you know, saying "f you," you're an a-hole, you piece of blank, and then could proceed to or yell at him, you know, uh, or allegedly yell at him. You know, if Trump wasn't president, you wouldn't even have a job. You're from the ghetto. What do you know? Wow. Right. And yeah. as a result of this encounter, um, the African American gentleman at the store was fired by Home Depot, even though he was cashier of the month previously and had worked there for a number of years. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, and after the social media outcry, the uh, Home Depot branch decided to try to hire him back, and the gentleman you know, refused them and said, "Well, if this is how you're going to treat me, then you know I'm I'm not interested in working here anymore." And so that relates to one of the other key takeaways, which was you know cu- you know businesses need to try to shape customer expectations. And so the idea of customer experience is meeting customer expectations, the perception um, that a customer has regarding how they were treated, uh, which is directly related to their expectations, right? If I expect, I I might take spirit air and expect not to have a great experience and that be fulfilled but then not look at it (laughs) negatively because that's what I expected, right? I mean, so it's hard to disassemble or disassociate expectations from experience. But companies, Mm. right, do need to set, you know, uh, expectations of their customers, whether it's a business-to-business environment or a business-to-customer environment. And this was a key takeaway that people at this event expressed, was that the shaping of customer uh, expectations to what is appropriate and Mm. creating... You know, so if you might email me, and if you do this with my students, even right, um, I tell my students you can email me anytime you want. It does not mean I'm going to respond to you. So yeah. even had one person at this event say, "I might respond to a client email at eight o'clock at night, but I set the uh, the the message to go out at eight o'clock next morning." 
so mm, the customer yeah. doesn't get used to me always being on call. Yeah. And I think that makes that makes good sense too. And like, and the, the question of appropriateness is is really interesting too. In that, uh, you know, how do we set the expectations in, in this regard of what is okay? I mean, another example I'm thinking of, of course, is even today. Today is uh, July 27th. Is that you know Facebook is is under huge scrutiny right now. Obviously, like still reeling from their own sort of data scandal with Cambridge Analytica and how the data was used. But then on top of that, now they just lost 120 billion dollars of their net worth. Uh, you know, partially because Mark Zuckerberg is refusing to sort of say, we will take a stance on how to sort of say what is appropriate, what is not appropriate, uh, of the kind of content that people can post on Facebook and the kind of communities that, that will be supported and allowed uh, to be there. And of course, like this sort of hinges on the question of like, could radical hate groups be allowed to continue pushing uh, agendas on Facebook? Could uh, conspiracy theory groups be able to do that too? And so it's a really interesting point of like where Zuckerberg basically says, I don't want to be in the police business, but uh, it's almost like, and the customer side saying, well, you need to respond. We need something, right? Yeah. And first off, you know, thoughts and prayers with Mark Zuckerberg during this difficult time. I myself just donated $20 to his GoFundMe page. And mm -hmm. I would encourage everybody listening to this to do the same, because if we're not there for each other in times like this, then we're not a civil society. So we're pulling for you, Mark. Good luck. And, yeah. you, know, Mark, you know, Facebook famously said, you know, we're not in the news business. We're in the content business, right? We're not a news or mm. something like that, some quote like that. Basically, we're not a news organization. Well, well most people get their news from Facebook, you know, or right, if not right. most, a good number of people get their news from Facebook. Then you do have a responsibility to your customers on that end. And you, it's, a, it's an easy cop-out to say, well, that's not our job. And I, I was just giving a talk. Um, I was asked to give a talk at a at a company on the other day. I was talking about ethnography and systems engineering, and the, the conversation swung to social media, and it had a lot to do with um, trust in a business. And you know, when you have these companies that are not operating on the customer's best interest by commoditizing um, their data or not policing the product to make sure it's safe. Right, And I would mm. think here with Facebook, this idea that we need a, pro a safe product, meaning the news and the content, that you really do need to um, you know, step up and, and fill that void and take that responsibility. And so this obviously you know, works as a two-way street. The customer might not always be right, but it certainly doesn't mean then that the business is always right. Yeah. And you know, the, it, this becomes a, a search for a kind of equilibrium of sorts, which you know, I will get to in the final point, but you know, this idea of shared expectations over what I expect from you as a customer, what your duty is, and also what you expect from me as a, as, as a business to a customer. And so how together we're building this relationship, this, this reciprocal symbiotic relationship where we're both dependent on each other. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's actually a great point. And, and, you know, even to come back to your earlier point, too, of like, you know, the customer may not always be right, but they're always human. And the other the other side, of course, is the business is also human, right? And uh, that, you know, we tend to forget it because we put bureaucracy or we put, you know, you know, stated rules and norms up, up and say, this is what we follow. We follow what's best for the company. But it's like, at the end of the day, that is actually about what is best for different humans and different, you know, different people in different levels of the organization. Yeah. And uh, that, that's something that we, that we, you know, would do well to not forget, you know. I was just at a phone call with, um, from my desktop computer with, a, you know, with Acer, who made my computer, because mm. my video card had failed for my, uh, my VGA, you know, connection. And so I called the, the person up, wherever this person was located. Might have been the United States, not sure. Um, and 
it turned out that they would not give me a new video card even though my computer was just a year over warranty, right? Um, huh, yeah. I'd have to go out and buy my own video card. And so I asked the person, I said, well, what do you think about this? And he paused for a long time. Because I'm, I'm looking for you, this person not to be the company, but looking for this person to be a person. What do you think about this? And hmm. he paused and said, well, this is the policy. And I said, I know that. But I'm asking yeah. you, what do you think about this? And understandably, probably he didn't answer. But I think that's yeah. the problem, right? That he did not feel empowered enough to make his own evaluation. His evaluation might have been, you know, I think it's fair because it's out of warranty. You know, I think it's perfectly appropriate. And that would, be, that would have been a fine response. But one mm. of the aspects that becomes important, which, you know, is in this, the summary point I want to make here in a second, is empowering workers to be proactive mm. in their responses. Not that they're, he's going to give me a brand new computer, right? But yeah. that he is going to develop that human touch in our communication and not just read off of computer prompts. And so part yeah. of one of the key takeaways was uh, this idea of treat me like I'm a person. Don't treat me like I'm a customer. Because mm -hmm. if you treat me like I'm a customer, that means you're just going to treat me like you treat anybody else. And not that I need special treatment, but I do want to have a sense of individual treatment that you're talking to me as an individual, not as just another call in your queue. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a super, super important point. And so I, I think because you, you're, you're kind of, you know, building to this idea, too, that like there's, you know, how do we how do we then train our employees? Like, I agree. It's like we need to be treated uh, as humans in, in all respects. And so, um, you know, what, what did you come away with this? Like, what are some of the ways that we might train through businesses, through employees, uh, to enact this? Yeah, so there were five main points that you know I came away with that I, as I was summarizing all of the great conversation from yesterday. And the number one thing, and this is not any, this is not going to be news to most people, if anybody, but is to have a sense of empathy. And by empathy, I mean, or at least sympathy, right? Trying to feel the position of the person. Recently, I just wrote a blog post about this. I had a problem with Travelocity, and the person who I was speaking to kept saying, I understand, I understand about my situation. And I'm thinking, no, you don't, because you're not in my situation right now. Unless you've been in my situation, then you couldn't understand. Hmm. So not so much to understand me, but to at least appreciate where I'm coming from. You know, So number one, train your employees to have this emotional intelligence, emotional awareness, to have a sense of empathy, sympathy for the customer and what the customer is going to. Number two, to encourage them and train them, more importantly, to diffuse the situation. And what that means is giving them an ethnographic awareness of interna interactional features and context to really navigate that moment in time. And I saw this in my liquor store research from years ago when looking at how when empowered, the people working behind the counter could find very nuanced ways of diffusing the situation. It doesn't mean that the customer always got what he or she wanted, but it did mean the, cut, the, the, the conflict didn't escalate, and better yet, the person felt good about the experience even though he or she didn't get the resolution that he or she wanted. So that's you know empathy, diffuse the situation, encouraging workers to use their judgment about what is fair, what is reasonable. 
and not just follow strict policies and guidelines. And there's all kinds of research, especially in the call center realm, of where just following the decision tree on your computer as policy and actually telling customers this is the policy can actually escalate the conflict mm. between customers and workers and decrease satisfaction and experience. Number four, companies need to support their employees. If the employees are acting in a fair and reasonable manner, you have to support their decisions. Like in the Home Depot case, that person was not supported uh, when he was fired. And there's a famous example about Southwest Airlines where a customer kept writing in the Southwest Airlines saying that, that she didn't appreciate how lax and how jovial um, the, the flight attendants were when reading the warnings about, you know, in the event of a crash or this is how your seatbelt works. Anybody who's ever flown Southwest knows that they take this one mundane moment, this, this, this touch point, and make it an experience. And mm. the CEO responded, well, you know, I, you know, basically I wish you well in flying somebody else. This idea mm. of supporting decisions, whether it is for what resolution or even to fire the customer saying, you know what, your, uh, your, your business is no longer welcomed here. And so mm. creating empathy, diffusing the situation and training people to have the skills to do so, encouraging them to use their judgment, to have some autonomy in making those decisions, support their decisions when those decisions are done in a fair and reasonable manner, and then encouraging resolution, right? So even if in a business to customer environment, coming back again from that touch point, checking back in with the customer if possible, and trying to achieve a resolution that is on fair and equitable, equitable terms. Doesn't mean the person's gonna be satisfied, but at least you've done everything you could do to make the situation better. I mean, that, that's a really wonderful list of, of, of you know, a, a sort of a checklist of what kind of frameworks and trainings we might be able to put in, in place. And, and across the business spectrum, you're right, like thinking about call centers into that's a really that's a really poignant example with Southwest Airlines, uh, you know, of, of, of a customer saying, you know, I don't like this. And they're like, OK, well, then we'll see you later. Yeah, you can't you can't you have know? every customer is not going to be your customer in all likelihood. Yeah. Right. I mean, so one of the other points that was discussed quite a bit was who are our customers? Who's the customer? Who are we trying to please? Mm. Who are we trying to keep? And not everybody is going to be the customer for us. I mean, obviously, some you know that's going to vary from business to business. Um, but and you know, Home Depot. You go to again using the Home Depot example or the Lowe's example. There's a separate checkout area for the contractors from the do-it-yourselfers, right? And so you have mm -hmm. this yep. separated experience of how we're going to treat people on this side of things. It's going to be different than this side of things. But we're not going to try to treat everybody. We're going to figure out who our customer is. We're going to figure out what their needs are. And we're going to try to hopefully train our employees to react in ways that are appropriate and better yet, hire employees that have the emotional intelligence, that have the ability to respond. And one of the people at the workshop talked about personality-based call routing even. And some companies are trying to experiment with where based upon the personality, and I'm not quite sure how this is measured and evaluated, based on the personality of the caller, it gets routed to try to match that person with the personality of the, of the call taker. Wow, that's super interesting. Yeah, right? So if you're a chatty yeah. customer, right, and you just want to talk, 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 you're going to get the chatty call service person. If in, 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 <laughs> if you are just like, you know, the I, I want just the facts, ma'am, very driven kind of focused, then you're going to get this other person. 
that's that's it's it's so funny because that actually makes me think of this could be a future episode conversation too. Is that you know with all with all the, the big push to AI and big data, which is a huge uh, an important topic of how people sort of measure. I'm going to put air quotes success of different businesses. This actually speaks to the idea and the importance of human intelligence or ethnographic intelligence, we might yeah. call it, right? I like ethnographic um, intelligence. That, so yeah. one of the things that I yeah. that I've looked at before is this idea of you know whether the saying that you know if common sense was common, more people would have it. You know, and so it's yeah. it's this ethnographic awareness. I know I know you know that if you're a competent member of society, you're already ethnographer because part of your job as a competent member of society is to be aware of the patterns, the beliefs, the attitudes, the practices, the behaviors that go into being that competent member of society. So we all have this ability, mm. but we also have to be able to, uh, you know, train that ability in different contexts, especially when business policies interfere with that ability. And I think that's one of the, the key mm. points here is that allowing people to do what they know how to do, build connection, encouraging them to do that, giving them training how to do that in these different contexts, in these different scenarios, and then allowing them to do that and then rewarding them for doing that, right? And, and you know, this mm. goes back to linking employee experience to customer experience and that the customer yeah. is not always right. Um, sometimes the employee is right, but that the customer-employee relationship is always a relationship, whether B2B or B2C, it's still a relationship. And it's under, having an ethnographic understanding of what makes that relationship work that becomes vital for businesses to be successful. Yeah, that's that's actually awesome. That's great. That's a great point to end on, it and so we can we can kind of build on in the future. Um, yeah, it's this is relationships, relationship building one one, and then sort of keeping that humanness in at the fore. You know, and like help. I, I actually I really liked what you said in terms of helping people do what they can do anyway. You know, and particularly when business ideas or policies get in the way of that. How do we how do we sort of remove those roadblocks? Um, that's great. Uh, Gary, it's been awesome to talk and I'm excited to kind of build this series. Yeah, me you. too. And, uh, you know, so lots of good things. Um, you know, so we'll be, we'll be bringing you guys a ton more content in terms of like different CX frontier events, different other kind of events that we'll be hopping into and kind of sharing some takeaways and as well as just jamming on some thoughts. As and they Adam, if the people wanted to send us ideas about different content, yeah. where could they send it? Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, we can certainly do that. We're, we're just getting our, our, our party started right now. <laughs> But we're setting up a site that would be experienceethnography.com. And so we'll have, a, we'll have an email set up pretty soon that can probably just be like, you know, questions or comments at inf- or experienceethnography.com. Um, what we'll do is I'll put it in the show notes when we get the email ready to roll. But um, yeah, I mean, we're going to have it. It'll be totally open. There'll be a submission page on the site. And uh, yeah, that's that's seems like great for to me. me too. Cool. Awesome. Thanks for talking. And we will catch you guys Bye. next time.